Miss the show, no worries, on point and on the podcast. Stunning revelations that a former female military officer reveals to Global News. She alleges she had an inappropriate relationship with Canada's top soldier that she says cost her many jobs. She broke her silence. It is a stunning interview. Trudeau government sits on the sidelines and takes no stand when it comes to a conservative motion that all other parties voted in favor of, stating that China is guilty of committing genocide. And why do so many unelected officials, why do all these health officials have so many powers when it comes to making economic decisions that can override elected officials like the premier? Let's get talking. What's your point? You just don't ever get to call. Am I getting through to you? That's the point. Do you understand? There is a point. That point where enough is enough. Here's Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. Listening. Mr. Gumbel. Mr. Speaker, I abstain on behalf of the Government of Canada. Mr. Gumbel, abstention, abstention. Mr. Hardy. What was that about? <laughs> that was my reaction. Now we know when it comes time to showing moral courage, Justin Trudeau and his government cower to dictatorships. We can mark this day down in the history books as the day Justin Trudeau and his party bowed to a thuggish regime rather than stand on the right side of history. Actually, he, he didn't take a stand at all. I mean, this is a guy who virtue signals about human rights and always standing up for Canadian values, who declared his own country had committed genocide against Indigenous people with no questions asked. But when it comes to China, he didn't even bother to leave his cottage to take a stand on the very obvious and well-documented abuses against over a million Uyghur Muslims. And so what this is, is, well, the Conservatives set the trap for Trudeau, and hey, he chose to hang himself. There's reams of evidence and quite disturbing evidence at that. So we have to stand up for what is right. And look, with two of our citizens who've been in prison unfairly and unjustly for over 800 days now, Canadians know there's already some security risks and, and trade disruption risks with China. But that shouldn't deter us from doing what is right. The fact that Mr. Trudeau did not even show up to be accountable is a terrible sign of leadership. That was uh, Aaron O'Toole, leader of the Conservatives. And all three opposition parties had no trouble voting in favor of the Conservative motion that labels Chinese human rights abuses that target Muslims in the western Xinjiang region as genocide. So the NDP, uh, Green Party, and the Bloc parked partisanship in order to send a message to China and the world that China's guilty of imprisoning Uyghur Muslims in derelict, I can't even say the word, in uh, concentration camps, uh, terrorizing them with forced labor, sexual violence, and, and forced sterilization. And this is not an issue of debate. The U.S. stated its genocide. U.N. experts, human rights groups around the world, have all documented the abuses. But Trudeau's been sucking and blowing on this issue for months, and today he just sucked. Because if he felt so strongly that this is not a genocide, then he should have voted no. He should have just shown up, period. But instead, you know, he and his liberal minions abstained from the whole thing. They, you know, chose the route of unprincipled wimps. And now we'll give credit where it's due, because two liberal MPs actually did have the character to take a stand, they didn't do the old liberal ostrich. 
And so Nathaniel Erskine Smith and Anthony Housefather voted in favor of the motion. Good for them. That is having morals. Now, this is not a binding motion, so it does not issue penalties. It does, however, send a message. And thanks to the opposition, Canada is now on record, officially, stating China's committing genocide. So this lays at a foundation moving forward that we have to take stronger actions against companies that import products being made by those being tortured in these camps. And we already have tools in the books, tools that we should have probably used a long, long time ago, the Magnitsky sanctions. We could have issued them when the two Michaels were kidnapped. We could have done this when they came after our canola farmers. I mean, there's so many examples of when they could have been used. I mean, you look at a guy. I mean, Trudeau has built his entire brand on virtue signaling. He's very blurry, however, when it, come, you know, when it comes to having this real moral clarity on whose human rights he's going to fight for. It's all talk and then no action. I mean, last week he called genocide a loaded term. But for months, he's been straddling the fence with China. He has refused to take a stand, likely more you know, worried about offending them than acting on behalf of you know, Canadians or standing up for those being tortured. And if you look at the polling over the last two years, which shows overwhelmingly that Canadians want the government to take a tougher stance against this dictatorship, not to mention, maybe at some point, he should realize that kissing China's butt isn't working. So China's got to be laughing at us. I mean, over the weekend... I was reading that the Chinese ambassador told Canada butt out of uh, their country's internal affairs. And this is the same ambassador who threatened bad things might happen to Canada should we give Hong Kong's, you know, the Canadians there or the protesters there asylum. And to this ambassador, we should be saying that his butt get kicked out of Canada on a one-way ticket back to the motherland. I mean, today was a chance for this prime minister to park his politics and take a lead. And he chose to hide in his cottage. And if that's where he's going to do his work, then he should spend some time Googling the term never again. And he should actually learn what it means. Because we actually did make a promise. Never again will we repeat what happened to the Jews. And we're watching it happen right now. Or letting it happen in Syria, all over the world. But this is, this is a day where he could have taken a stand. I would have had more respect for his government if they did come out and actually take a stand. Even if it was no, at least then, you, you know, they're willing to stand up for what they believe, even if I disagree with it. But to abstain altogether is such a bad look. It just is not a good look. So we will talk about this because China's going to retaliate one way or another. They don't care. And they're clearly not scared. The other issue that was also debated today, is about the Olympic Games in 2022 and whether or not we should join the global community in making those games get moved out of Beijing. And I don't, I don't, I don't want to see the athletes get punished, but there's no question we should not be going to those games. They can be moved and should be moved. I just don't know. How, I just, I could... I don't know how anybody could go in good conscience. Stay with us here. Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. I want to say she's a warrior. 
with lots of scars. Tell me about how you met John Vance and what your relationship with him has been. I met him at um, a legion on the 11th of November and I was with my commander and I was his EA, his SO, we call a staff officer. Um, and he presented himself to my commander and looked at me. And in that moment, my, it's funny the body language, my commander took a step backwards and he took a step forwards. And then he pursued me afterwards, emailing me, asking me out. Um, we dated openly, out at dinner. Uh, I would call it courting. I think that um, at the first, one of the first meetings, he, just, he said something to me that I think has stuck with both of us for the whole 20 years. Is He described it as ships in the night that clink their lights when they see each other and they know that they're not alone. And I, I want to say that that's been the underlying relationship. That uh, was a pretty stunning interview. That is Mercedes Stevenson sitting down with Major Kelly Brennan over the weekend on the West Block. And uh, she's broken her silence about her relationship with then Canada's top military officer, Jonathan Vance, uh, when she worked under him. And she called herself his dirty little secret, alleging their affair was very well known among those in higher ranks of the military. And then once he promoted, uh, was promoted to top soldier, chief of defense, uh, his job was to stamp out sexual misconduct in the military in an operation called Operation Honor. And Major Brennan takes us through the relationship that she says, you know, they have sex in his office, hers and his homes, in cars. Uh, but once Vance got promoted, this is when she says it had to go underground. Right before he became CDS, I can remember an event. He had me over at his house his residence, and um, we drank wine, and we sat in his bed, and we had sex, and we decided he was writing his speech for becoming CDS, but he really wanted my opinion on a lot of facts. So then he told me afterwards, he says, you know, we're going to have to stop this kind of like in a language, not specifically, but just in the way he spoke to me. And for a little while, uh, I was posted away, very far away, so we didn't have a relationship. And when I was posted back to Ottawa, that's when it started again. And at this time, he's, he's the chief of the defense staff. He's the top soldier, and you are an active serving officer in the military, right? Yes. So Mercedes kept talking to Major Brennan, um, who says that the relationship was in fact consensual, but it was once Vance was promoted, she felt it it cost her um, positions under his under his watch, uh, but that he would post her to cities where he worked to keep her close, just not too close. Now Global has reported 
other allegations of inappropriate uh, sexual relationships with other women under his command. Back in uh, 2015, they uh, went through an investigation that was launched, but there were no charges laid, and Vance would go on to be promoted. Then um, Mercedes talks about in 2018 that Harjit Sajjan, the Minister of Defence, was uh, warned about possible inappropriate relations, and Sajjan claims that he reported all of this to the authorities, but nothing happened, clearly. And Justin Trudeau has been asked about what he knew when a couple of times by Global News. And he doesn't talk. He won't say anything other than a talking point. And even though senior military officials knew about this relation relationship uh, between the two, uh, Major Kelly Brennan believes that it was the relationship that kept her at lower ranks because, as she claims in this interview, Vance told her to promote her would make it complicated. Do you feel that General Vance ever had an influence over your postings or an influence over your career because of his high rank? I was posted into Toronto because he wanted me there. Um, he doesn't necessarily, as the CDS, rank you as a low-ranking officer. Like, he doesn't have anything to do with your PR. But when I worked for him in Toronto, he did. He wrote my PR. He evaluated me. At the time, it was really funny because other people got promoted and I was promotable, is what we call it. But he, I, when I asked him, I said I didn't get recommended. And he says, well, I can't recommend you. Even though I had, at the time, the qualifications for the next rank. In the interview, at the time, Brennan says she was a guard officer. Um, she says she couldn't question Vance, couldn't say no to his calls to the relationship or speak out, and claims that he kept her in lower ranks because he felt it would big, uh, bring big problems his way. I think that when he got married, it became underground. I became the dirty little secret. And I felt that way. I felt that that's the way he, he saw me. Um, and that changed the dynamics of me uh, being free with speaking of it or, or saying anything was because that was imposed. It wasn't something that I wanted. It, it, I, was, I was a single woman. I didn't have anything to be fearful of. When you were working for John Vance, did you feel you could say no to the relationship? Was it consensual? On a personal level, consensual meaning, was I participating in it? Yes. Could I say no to him? No. Uh, and the reason why I say that is because if he rang me on the phone or if he texted me, I was obliged to get back to him. Um, if he asked to see me, I had to drop tools and see him. Do you feel that General Vance abused his authority, his command, by having a relationship with you, both in 2006 in Toronto and while he was the CDS? I think so, because no matter how much we want to say that it doesn't affect your career or it doesn't affect your life, it does. The interview goes on for quite some time. It was a 24-minute interview, and um, Brennan claims high-level military officers knew of the issues and did nothing, and then actually claims 
it wasn't just Vance who asked for sex. She actually claims that she was raped at one point by a male superior and that she went to Vance about it. He did nothing. And all of this was happening at a time when he was supposed to be stamping out sexual misconduct in his own ranks. Nonetheless, uh, he did not say anything. Now, all these allegations have not been proved. Brennan says she is breaking her silence because many military women have gone through this because she says it's endemic and that the armed forces is broken. And so I'm not sure where this goes. I know that the uh, Trudeau office has been asked several questions. It becomes an issue of who knew what when. And certainly, um, again, none of the allegations proved against General Vance. But it is a hell of an interview, and it is very much worth watching because it's very, very revealing. Certainly asks a lot of questions. Stay with us, Alex Pearson on point, and this is Global News Radio. It may be shameful, but it uh, really shouldn't surprise anyone that the Trudeau government abstained from taking a stand on if China is committing genocide against one million Uyghur Muslims that are being jailed and tortured in very well-documented internment camps. And you'll recall last week Trudeau called the term loaded. He didn't have a problem saying Canada is committing genocide against indigenous people, but when it comes to China, he's got no stand to take. And the United States has called this what it is. The United Nations, human rights groups all around the world have all declared what this is. And they have the evidence to back it up. And this was a conservative motion. All the opposition parties parked their partisanship and took a moral stand. Two liberal MPs actually voted in favor of it. But at large, Trudeau and his party didn't even take a stand. They just simply took the coward's way out by abstaining. Charles Burton, senior fellow with Macdonald Laurier Institute. He's a professor at Brock University, where he uh, is an expert in Canada-China relations and human rights, also a former counselor at the Canadian Embassy to China. Hello, Charles. Oh, oh Alex. Uh, historic day. Yeah, well, it is historic. I mean, at least at the end of the day, um, the, the opposition parties had the, uh, you know, the temerity to stand on the right side of history. But, of course, uh, the Trudeau liberals, I would say, took the wimpy way out. They didn't even take a stand, period. Well, you know, it passed unanimously 266 to 0, um, including the amendment that uh, 29 MPs had opposed the amendment on the government demanding of the International Olympic Committee that the Olympics be um, relocated, but then none of those people who opposed that amendment voted against the motion. So it's, you know, an overwhelming will of Parliament, 266 to zero. But, as you say, every single member of the Trudeau cabinet, including the Prime Minister, abstained. But the only one who bothered to to say that he was abstaining was the Minister of Foreign Affairs, um, Mark Garneau, who made an odd statement, which was abstaining on behalf of the government. And so it's pretty clear that even though the overwhelming will of our duly elected parliament is that Canada should recognize what's going on with the Uyghurs as genocide and take the appropriate measures to respond, like Magnitsky sanctions, that our government is going to pretend that this never happened and continue with their uh, current line, which is that they won't believe it until, I think as Mr. Trudeau put it, the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed, although there is no T in the word genocide last time I spelled it, mm-hmm. and that there should be an international investigation, which of course the Chinese would welcome an international investigation <laughs> if they weren't committing genocide. And so, yeah. you know, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever, and it's very troubling that you can have a unanimous resolution of the, of the Parliament of Canada, and then the government does not will not respond to it in any way whatsoever, as far as I can predict. 
Yeah, and, and overwhelmingly in the last couple of years, polling has showed it's not even close. It's like 85% of Canadians want action taken, want Canada's relationship to change with China. So it's not like Trudeau would not have the support of this country. I would have actually had more support or uh, more respect for him if they had actually taken a stand and said no. At least then they're taking a stand instead of sticking their head in the sand. But how will this then be read in China? Because it's obviously, in my interpretation, he's doing it to appease China. But there's no way China's not going to retaliate. They've been talking about it all day. They've declared that this is slander uh, against their their um, government and their country. And so what happens now? Well, I guess that, you know, the members of cabinet who have abstained will still be getting those China boards and other benefits after they retire from government. <laughs> I'm cynical <laughs> about it. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think that the Chinese will be very pleased because the Trudeau government is clearly not going to um, declare genocide. Um, it's possible that, you know, we'll see a, a grouping of like-minded countries that will join together to implement Magnitsky sanctions. The government has been hinting mm -hmm. that kind of thing. The government hints a lot of things about China, like we'll make the Huawei decision before the election, which was the last election. I don't think we're going to see the Huawei decision made before the next election and, uh, you know, various other virtue signaling with regard to protecting Canadians who are being harassed by agents of the Chinese hate, particularly Uyghurs, Tibetans and uh, ethnic Chinese democracy activists or, you know, providing safe harbor for, for young people in Hong Kong and, and some old people in Hong Kong who are going to be subject to uh, persecution and possible transmission to join Michael Kovrick and Michael's favor in Chinese prison hell because of the um, new national security law, which Canada believes is illegal. So, no, we talk a good line, but we don't actually do anything that the Chinese government could possibly object to. So they get it. They get the best of, the best of all worlds this way. But, you know, the reputation of Canada as a principled nation that, stands up for what's right is going down the tubes. Yeah, and, and it won't. Appeasing China will not work. They've tried that now for a few years. It's clearly not working, and they continue this approach. Meanwhile, their own ambassador uh, to China in this country continually making threats. I mean, he's telling us this weekend to butt out of their business, and he can just do that. And it's it's almost embarrassing because you're right. Canada has, generally speaking, been a very principled nation. Um, and known to stand on the right side and, and under this government, they don't take a stand certainly on the right side of history. But, you know, it, it doesn't, I don't understand their strategy here of what they think they're going to get out of this. That's what I don't get is what, what is their strategy to dealing with this? Right. I don't, I mean, it's not going to achieve the release of Kovrigan's favor. After 800 days of, you know, failed diplomacy on this matter, it's time to take another tack. But when they were talking about doing a reset with China last last fall, it evidently failed in cabinet. And, you know, we saw Mr. Champagne saying, oh, well, we can't do a reset because things are changing so much in China that we can't keep up with it. it, seemed to be the gist of what he was saying. But, you know, what the Chinese government does in, in Xinjiang and in violation of, of the norms of trade and, and in hostage diplomacy is not changing. In fact, it's getting worse. And so mm -hmm. it's really time for us to look at our policy, you know, and hopes in a nonpartisan way, say that, you know, what we did in the past has not worked out in the Canadian interest, and we have to start doing things very differently from here on in. 
Yeah, I mean, it's 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 almost um, it's just baffling that the the prime minister, you know, can commit his own country and uh, you know accuse this country of, of committing a genocide without even thinking about it or reviewing the re, you know the report that accused this country of that. And yet, when it comes to China, where there's this overwhelming uh, body of evidence, uh, it's a loaded term. Um, and I, I just, their propaganda is going to be rife with this. Canada commits genocide. China does not. I mean, it's it's not a good look. No, it's not. And it's almost inexplicable as to how we can have a government that does not defend what's right in Canada. And there's no question about it that what's going on there is what's going on. And the fact that we, you know, we, we, we try and, and pretend that that we need more information or we need an investigation. It just doesn't make sense. We've got satellite evidence. We've got ample yeah. witness evidence. You know, mm-hmm. this, this is not something that's being made up. The Chinese government stance, which is that all of the Uyghurs who've escaped the, uh, the camps who are um, speaking out are <laughs> trained actors. You know, it just, like, how can we put up with with uh, with um, an ambassador, Chinese ambassador, Canada, who spouts out this complete nonsense? We should be declaring the guy persona non grata and demanding that the Chinese send in someone who is not going to be treating us for, for fools. Well, if you act a fool, you get treated like a fool, and clearly this government wants to act that way. Charles, always appreciate your insight, and we'll stay tuned because this is coming. This is becoming a daily topic now in the news, and I don't suspect it's going to change anytime soon, so I appreciate you joining us. It's been great to speak with you again. Take care. Thank you. That is Charles Burton joining us here. And so it's not going away because the other issue that was voted on, as uh, Charles mentioned, is about the Olympics and moving the games. And I only think that that pressure is going to be ramped up as we get closer to that, not because we want to, you know, punish the athletes. I just don't think in good conscience uh, we can or should be sending them um, to a country that is so clearly in violation of so many uh, wrongs, including the two Michaels. So stay with us here. Alex Pearson on point. And this is Global News Radio. Premier Ford, you know, he may be the elected decision maker, but it is these unelected regional public health officials who seem to have all the power. The question is, you know, should they? Um, because it was Dr. Eileen Devilla who pushed for Toronto to remain closed. Dr. Lau pushed for Peel to state shut down. And then if you lived in York region, the medical officer of health did the opposite. Dr. Kareem Kurji actually pushed for the region to go into a red zone. So he says businesses could catch their breath. And normally, you know, who knows that a public health officer, because they focus on things like, oh, I don't know, vaccine programs, uh, clean restaurants, making sure that the water's clean, those things. But during this pandemic, uh, we're now starting to see that they have enormous powers to actually impose policy that would override those elected to be the decision makers. In other words, if Premier Ford decided, let's open up Toronto in the GTA, these unelected officials can override that. Banging the question, why should unelected officials have such unrestricted power? And if they are going to have such powers to shut down entire economies, should they not then be held accountable for those decisions? Ryan O'Connor is a partner at the Toronto-based Zayung Law Firm, also currently representing clients who are challenged and challenging provincial pandemic restrictions. Good to have you. Nice to be with you tonight, Alex. Did I say your law firm right? Zayuna? Zayuna. Yeah, you got it right. Okay. 
There you go. I'm like, okay. Um, you've been very busy working on, on such cases that um, are kind of rules made by unelected officials that, that <laughs> seem to kind of go against everyone's um, civil liberties in, in Toronto, certainly in this country. Um, but, but I think you write a really thoughtful article, which was in the Toronto Sun, um, kind of talking about how much power these unelected officials have. And, you know, they don't really have to show their work for the decisions they make and yet can make them so easily. Well, exactly. I, I don't even think before the pandemic, anyone could really name their local medical officer of health uh, in uh, Ontario. Um, they have uh, extensive powers under provincial legislation to uh, control uh, not only the, the health and well-being of those residents in their communities, but also their economic uh, well-being and, and uh, the variability of businesses to, uh, to remain open or remain closed. And the pandemic has really laid that bare. Uh, prior to the pandemic, you know, you might hear from a public health official, you know, talking about sugary drinks or cannabis gummies and how they should be restricted. We shouldn't have a late last call. But now uh, public health officials throughout the province have, have been not only just advising governments about uh, about policy uh, restrictions, economic restrictions, but they're also using their, their powers to do it themselves and uh, without the sort of accountability that politicians have. And I've, I've identified that as something that's, that's quite problematic. I do. I think it is problematic as well, because um, especially certainly in Toronto, where no data is ever presented. So we get these grandiose um, decisions or, uh, you know, in last week, uh, Dr. Davila was really pushing to have the uh, lockdown extended in Toronto. And certainly uh, Dr. Lau was in Peel. Um, and at, at the time, you know, you get this very ominous fear mongering. This is my biggest concern since the start of this. But what we never got was actual data. And I don't know how she would present data because Toronto stopped tracing months ago. Precisely. I, one of, I think if you asked any member of the public what public health role should be in the community, pandemic or not, and it should be contact tracing and managing uh, diseases and, and, you know, uh, outbreaks, handling vaccination programs and dealing with restaurant inspections. But Toronto threw in the towel on contract tracing in September when cases were in the low hundreds. They already decided at that point, Toronto Public Health did, that they just didn't want to allocate the resources or, or focus their energies on contact tracing. And what was the policy response to that? Well, because they couldn't contact trace, because Toronto Public Health elected not to or elected not to devote the resources towards it, they advocated for greater restrictions. Toronto, uh, through Dr. Davila and Mayor Tory, uh, who's been supportive of Dr. Davila the whole time, he's been frankly playing uh, Robin to Dr. Davila's Batman, uh, came out and argued for uh, greater restrictions in October before the province uh, was even prepared to do so. Uh, all because, at least partly because, they weren't able to contact trace. But they weren't able to contact trace because they elected not to allocate those resources. They, they're uh, seeking to shut down the economy for not doing work that, that they're paid to do. Well, not doing work that should have been done and should have been organized, um, you know, after the first wave, because we had months during the summer when there weren't as big cases. You know, that was the moment when those in charge really had a choice um, and could have said, OK, look, we've got to get a plan in place that would be aggressive tracing, rapid testing, uh, shutting the borders and, and restricting and making sure those coming in and out were checked. Um, and none of that was done. And here we are now into our fourth lockdown. You've got restaurants in Toronto that have been shut down for, what, 150 days, gyms, all these businesses being crushed. Um, and I don't know if we're on a collision course. I mean, frankly, I was surprised and have been surprised that, that Doug Ford has not been, you know, um, kind of 
taking a step back and making decisions and saying, okay, I got to balance the health of the economy and the health, uh, you know, wishes of my, of my health officials. But we don't get that. We just get these draconian lockdown measures. And now, you know, John Tory today is saying, well, we'll, we're going to really push to get Toronto open on March 9th or 8th or whenever the next day is. But again, the cases, Ryan, are not going to be any lower. If anything, they're probably going to be higher. Yeah, but we don't, and Mayor Tory and Dr. Villa haven't given us any metrics for reopening. In his press conference today, as you say, Alex, said, well, you know, I hope to reopen on, or start to reopen, not hope to reopen, start to reopen. Yeah. So we don't even yeah. have a plan. Well, you've had since, since November 13th, Toronto has been uh, involved in, in uh, one lockdown or another. And let's not forget that the current lockdown actually started before the province locked Toronto down at the end of November. It started two weeks before when Dr. Villa issued an order as she's allowed to do, it's called a class order under the Health uh, Promotion and Protection Act, uh, Protection and Promotion Act that that uh, closed indoor dining, that closed gyms, that closed event spaces in bingo halls and the like. That was done two weeks before the province felt it was appropriate to do so. So, you know, we don't know if Toronto had different data than the province or what have you, but it was Dr. Davila who locked down Toronto before the province was prepared to do so. So this lockdown has been two weeks longer in Toronto because of what local public health officials have felt was appropriate. And and her ability to do that was under provincial legislation. She was able to shut down businesses by way of a simple order, a stroke of a pen, a click of a button. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, that that's that should be, I think, be alarming to everybody because there's no accountability. I mean, Doug Ford, um, you know, will have an election. He'll be held accountable by the voters, as will John Tory. But these health officers who make a, a quite a nice chunk of change, I think it's upwards of three hundred thousand uh, dollars mm-hmm. a year, uh, get to make these arbitrary decisions that can be very, very damaging and can override decisions by people who we actually elect. And, you know, all the decisions that have made been made, certainly in the Toronto area, uh, certainly with restaurants, gyms and businesses. I mean, we've been shut down so long now. Uh, we know that they're not driving the spread. We And yet they're the ones still being punished. Well, there again, and we haven't seen any data to suggest that gyms, for example, were causing super spreader events, yet they've been vilified uh, by uh, by Dr. Villa and by uh, other health officials throughout the province. We don't know what data they're looking at. Dr. Kirby is a medical officer of health just north of Toronto and York, has said it's appropriate for uh, York Region to reopen. But across Steeles Avenue, which forms the border of uh, Toronto and York Region, Dr. Neville is saying, no, we, we just can't open across the street from a part of the province that's open. And what I've proposed, Alex, uh, you know, is just three simple mechanisms that will make these public health officials more accountable when they take measures to uh, restrict the functioning of the economy. There should be a sunset clause on any um, public health order that affects the uh, the operational local economy, that it should be reviewed after 14 days and it can be renewed, and then it could only be uh, uh, renewed again if it was ratified by, uh, by a local uh, council. A local council should also have the ability to overturn um, uh, public health orders that affect the operation of the local economy. And finally, these public health officials, uh, medical officers and health should have to report to local councils every 30 days when they impose orders that affect the operation of the local economy. These are sensible legislative amendments that should be made that will make these public health officials uh, more accountable, both during the pandemic, if it continues to be ongoing, as well as beyond. Yeah, my fear is though that this council, certainly the one in Toronto, <laughs> would not override anything because they're probably happy with these uh, measures. Let me just ask you this: If March ninth com- comes, March eighth comes, um, and Ford says, "Look, we got to open up," can Davila then override him? And could he, the premier, uh, move legislation to take that power um, from her, or or is that a, a, a municipal thing? 
Yeah, so a public health official can uh, can add restrictions in terms of business closures. Uh, we saw that in November. For two weeks in November, the local restrictions in Toronto were actually Dr. DeVilla's restrictions in terms of the ban on indoor dining and the ban on event spaces, et cetera. And what we've seen even as the province reopened, uh, uh, you know, uh, other public health units in eastern Ontario uh, two weeks ago, uh, Hastings, Prince Edward uh, County, their public health official, their medical officer health, pardon me, uh, actually imposed restrictions beyond what the province is prepared to do by banning businesses from taking reservations from persons coming from uh, places with a stay-at-home order. So, for example, Toronto. So, uh, so that local medical officer health actually restricted um, businesses from being able to accept uh, accept patrons from elsewhere in the province. Um, mm-hmm. And that was not something that the province contemplated. The province wanted to reopen those health units, felt that the data was appropriate to do so, and the local medical officer of health went above and beyond that. Jeez, well, yeah, I can't see cases going down, so it's going to be an interesting uh, battle come uh, two weeks from now. Uh, but nonetheless, we've got to get open, and um, we'll see where this takes us. Ryan, I appreciate your time. No problem. It's good to be with you tonight, Alex. That is Ryan O'Connor, and uh, he is, in fact, representing people who are challenging provincial pandemic restrictions. So he's with the Toronto-based Zayuna Law Firm, if, in fact, you are caught in the middle of this and want to maybe chat with him. Stay with us on point. I'm Alex Pearson. This is Global News Radio. You can join us, of course, Monday through Friday, starting 6.30 sharp here. I'm Alex Pearson on point. This is Global News Radio.